0: We're already in time to start Psalm eighty-four. All right, Psalm eighty-four. <coughs> psalm eighty-four tonight. A shorter psalm, so I was thinking, oh, we'll be able to breeze through this, in no time at all. And then I started studying it, so we'll see. Uh, see if we can get through this. Um, another just wonderful psalm, with some rich texts and some rich themes. Um, answer this for yourself. What what gets you really excited? What what builds the anticipation in your own life? Um, we're going to see that mindset, that anticipation, that excitement uh, in this verse and uh, or in the psalm. And I think it will be instructive and helpful for us. Uh, Pastor Paul does have some extra handouts. If you don't have one and would like one, uh, to make your own notes and underline. Um, Gentlemen, I don't have the back projector screen. Oh, there it goes. We're on now. We're good to go. Um, But Pastor Paul has some extra handouts if you need any. If you need one, just slip your hand up and he'll get one to you. Psalm 84 it's a song of Zion. It's, we're going to see kind of a theme of a pilgrim wandering and journeying. And uh, you see there it's to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah weren't necessarily the authors or writers of the psalm. They were the instrumentalists. They were they're the ones who would, who would sing this. So um, we're going to pray and ask God to guide us. We'll read it. And uh, when we read it, this is what I want you to do this time around. Look for repeated ideas. Two things. One repeated ideas that you see, and uh, two different titles of God that you see, all right? Uh, even uh, Chris Anderson this past weekend said the great, great practice is reading through the Psalms and just journaling down all the attributes of God that you see, and this is a great Psalm to do that with. But let's go ahead and pray, ask God to guide us, and then we'll jump into Psalm 84. Lord, thank you for this evening together. Thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and powerful. Uh, Lord, I pray um, that we would approach it reverently and carefully, um, but we would also just catch a glimpse of the passion and the desire that we as your children should have for your very presence. We thank you for being near to us, for being close to us, and giving us your word so that we may know you more. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, let's read through it, and remember those two things I, I suggested to look for As we read, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. What are the repeated ideas themes that you picked up on as we read through Psalm 84. Anyone catch anything? Rebecca? Lots of references to O Lord of hosts. Yes, absolutely. We having some trouble there? It's blinking in and out. It's blinking in and out. Yeah, yeah, All right, I was completely oblivious the whole time. That's a good thing. <laughs> well, you in, this case, in this you case, in this case, that's right. I'm oblivious more than I should be, but... Uh, All right, let's see here. Well, now it's real blinking. Let's see here. All right, good stuff. Okay, so Rebecca noticed um, a repeated title of God, and that was Lord of Hosts. We see that several times. Uh, four times, very good. So we see it in verse 3, we see it in verse, uh, what, sorry, did I miss? Oh, I, okay, I said, why did I say verse 3? I don't know. There is verse 3, okay, see, I'm, I'm oblivious again. Okay, uh, verse 3, verse 8, and verse 12, thank you. All right. Oh, Lord of hosts, and when we see hosts, what is that referring to? What's that? Okay, yeah, it's, it's the idea of armies, and, that, and, and that's, you know, the, the heavenly armies, you could even include earthly armies, so this is Lord God of armies. Um, what does this communicate about God, that he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies? What does this say about his attribute, his character? He's at the top of the pyramid. Top of the pyramid, yeah, yeah. At top of the pyramid, he's, we see, I heard strength. Anything else? Authority, yeah. Sovereignty. (laughs) O Lord God of hosts. Good. What else? Other repeated ideas? Yes. Um, There's lots of talk about your dwelling, your home. Yes, very good. Did anyone else notice that? So how lovely is your dwelling place? Um, The courts of the Lord. Uh, The sparrows find a home. Um, At your altars, dwell in your house. Uh, Let's see what else we have here. Day in your courts. House. Tents. Alright, so that's a really repeated theme. And when we hear about the dwelling place of God, what is that in reference to? The temple. And what would you say... What is the perspective of this psalm? Where does this writer find himself? Does he find himself at the temple or not at the temple? Think I heard it? Not at the temple. Yeah. Um, He seems to be journeying. Or at least referring to those who are journeying. And really the very first verse, or second verse, his soul longs and faints for the courts of God. So he desires it. He's not there. Okay? So, Um, We see those repeated themes. Very good. What about just attributes of God? What different titles of God did you see in this song? Yes. Yes. Yep. Our shield. Any other ones that we found? The living God. Yeah. The living God. Yep, that's way back up here in verse 2. King. king. My king and my God. What was that? God the God of Jacob. Yep, right down here in verse 8. Let's see if there's any more. God of Zion. So where is, uh, there's God in Zion. He is the God of Zion. Um, let's see. I think we got at least most of them. So if we were to describe this or summarize this psalm in one statement, it would be the the pilgrim's great desire to be in the presence of God. For to sum it up in one phrase, he is proclaiming the joy and satisfaction of being in His presence. While he's on his way to Jerusalem, the the Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, to be in the very presence of God. And we're going to see some very practical applications to our own lives as we consider our own Christian walks as we walk through this psalm. But let's go ahead and dig in uh, here to verses 1 and 2, where we see the psalmist expressing his deep desire to be in the presence of God. He says, How lovely is your dwelling place. The the King James has the word amiable here. Um, It's really not talking about the beauty of the architecture. He's not saying the temple's so lovely, it's so beautiful, I just love looking at it. The the Hebrew word there is talking, is really carrying the idea of well-loved. It is beloved. Uh, the The temple is loved because that is where the presence of God is. I love it because it is a dwelling place of God. And then he says, O Lord of hosts, of armies, Um, And this is repeated all throughout the psalm. So right off the bat, we see the psalmist describing his desire, his love for the temple, for the dwelling place of God. Verse 2. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. We see the word longs here. This is the idea of, of great desire. That's pretty clear. In faints is the idea of being spent or wearied. This reminds me of Psalm forty-two, one: "As the deer pants for the flowing stream, so my, so pants my soul for you, O God." The psalmist here is describing a great desire for the courts of the Lord, the presence of God, to the point that he's wearied by his own desire for God's presence. He is wearing himself out from his great desire. He continues along these lines and saying, my flesh and my heart, my heart and my flesh sing for joy. What's the significance of both of these terms together? What do you think he's trying to communicate by saying both my heart and my flesh sing for joy? Body and soul Body and soul would be a good way of, of describing it. Uh, you could say this is everything in him. My heart cries out and my body cries out. I want God. I want his presence. Uh, everything in me. Uh, it's, it's a genuine, deep, real desire. The word for sing for joy here is actually one Hebrew word that really just simply means cry out. And so it could say, my heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. And and, and while it's most often translated uh, as a shout of joy, there's other situations in which it's translated like a shout even in lament. I'm crying out. Um, and so it's hard to, to know if he's saying that my flesh and my, my heart and my flesh cry out out of joy or out of longing. I mean, they're closely connected, right? We don't have to split hairs too much. Um, but it, what one thing is clear is he has a deep desire for the very presence of God. Now, I want to stop real quick and apply this to us today. Because it's hard when we're talking about the temple and the courts and altars to consider the question, well, how should we apply this? Is there any sense in which we should have a craving for God's presence if, if we already have the presence of God with us? Um, because there is, there is as, as Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, true worshipers no longer need to go to the temple. Do you remember that passage where he says that, that there will come a day when true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. You'll no longer worship me at the temple or in this mountain. And so we do have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. And our bodies are the temple of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit. But is there any sense, let me ask this question, tell me what you think, is there any sense in which we can apply this, this craving for the dwelling place of God or the presence of God, is there any way in which we can apply this to the gathering of believers in the church? Do you think that's a legitimate application? There's a great desire to be with God's people mm-hmm. and to, to be amongst with the Spirit Okay. Now let's, let me ask this question. Is there any way in which we, we, we all know that the Spirit dwells amongst individual believers? Is there a way in which there's a special presence of God among the gathering of believers? When there's true worship? Okay. Really okay. I, I think I think there is a sense in which we can say that when the believers gather together there is a special presence of God. And let me let me let me explain that. Even for the Old Testament Christian, did they believe that God's presence was strictly at the temple and nowhere else? No. They had a sense in which the, 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 that God was with them personally, right? For you are with me. Your God and your staff, they comfort me, right? There was this personal presence that even Old Testament <laughs> believers knew that God is with me all the time, um, Old Testament believers didn't just speak about God's presence as only at the temple, but they did speak of it as his special dwelling place. This is the special presence of God. And there actually is a sense in which God's special presence is among his gathered people in the New Testament. And let me give you some verses that describe this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 5, 4. This is in context of of there's an individual that needs to be confronted in the church. And, uh, and and the believers in Corinth are not stepping up to the plate, and, and Paul says, "When you are assembled, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus." There's this connection of the assembly and the power of the Lord Jesus being there. We know the passage, Matthew eighteen twenty, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am among them. Again, this is in the context of the church discipline passage where the two or three are approaching them. But there still is a sense in which saying when there's believers gathering together, that God's, there's God's special presence is there. That's Matthew eighteen twenty. First 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. That in that verse, you is plural. He's talking to a group of believers. So you could say, do you not know that you all or y'all are God's <laughs> temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all. So there's collectively as believers, you are a temple. Acts 2:42 because there's a special there's a special privilege of gathering together. We read that they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and in prayers. We read in 1020, Hebrews 10.25 that we are not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we see two things in the New Testament. The priority of believers to gather together and the special presence of the Holy Spirit, even describing the gathering of Christians as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so I think we can take passages that describe a longing, a, a, a craving, a desiring for the temple and take it to meaning our desire to be with God's people, to be, to be gathered together. Um, any questions, comments on, on that? So this is the heart of The psalmist. Verses 3 and 4, the psalmist is jealous of those who get to live there. That's what he's saying here in these verses. Who's he jealous of, first of all? The sparrow, the birds. Sparrow finds a home. The swallow a nest for herself, where? Where do they find a nest? At At your altars. So in poetic language, the psalmist pictures the birds that get to make nests and lay their eggs in the temple courts by the altars. They're like, how come they get to live there? That's not fair. And then verse 4, he says, He's jealous of those who get to live in the temple complex. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Who would these be? The priests, the temple singers, right? Those who were designated to worship worship. Um, And so there's these people that were living in the temple complex and this pilgrim, this psalmist is saying, oh, that'd be so great. Just to live there, just to be there, to never have to leave. You know, perhaps you've enjoyed the special presence of God even at a church service and thought, I just don't want to leave. Why do we have to go home? Now, realistically, life is not spent in the temple, right? Life is not lived in the church. And he acknowledges this, right? Later on in the passage, he's going to acknowledge this. Most of our lives are are in the trenches, so to speak, the day-to-day. And his jealousy, I think, is basically reflecting how much he loves the presence of God. Just jealous of even the birds that get to build a nest and lay their eggs right there in the temple. That's how much he loves the presence of God. Is that how much you crave the presence of God? Is there that genuine desire in you to be in his presence, to be with his people. Verses 5 through 7. This is a really fascinating set of verses. And I think we see here that believers enjoy the strength and blessing of God even on their way to the temple. We just talked about how blessed are those who are in the presence of God. But who is blessed in verse 5?
1: So there's those who are blessed. They're in the temple.
0: They're enjoying the presence of God. Who's being blessed in verse 5? It's not the people in the temple. On their way. Where do we see that? In whose heart are the highways to Zion. So blessed are those whose strength is in you. In whose heart are the highways to Zion. So we see two descriptors of those, of blessed are those. Number one, whose strength is in you. This is the believer who trusts in the Lord for his strength as he travels to the temple. And the second one, a unique, interesting phrase here, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Literally in the Hebrew, this says, Who's, who has highways in their hearts. Sounds like a song. What is that communicating, do you think? The highways to Zion are in their hearts. What do you think? Good. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and be with him, there's that sense of expectation and wanting, yes. by the way, in the way, as you're going to, Yeah. as the highway in your heart, That yeah. is he's going to meet with the Lord, that expectation. Yeah, good. So, it's the hope, it's the expectation of your destination that actually provides joy on the way. Yeah, Justin. So that plus rose, you wall of the house, and everything in your praise, would you take that Little standpoint. The next couple of words are going to say you go through a dark valley where there's no water, yeah. and I give you a spring, yes. where you're going from when from puddle to puddle, suck up the water. If you are keeping ever my praise in your lips, mm-hmm. you're blessed. Yes, exactly. And so from a literal standpoint, he's just continuing his thought you know, if I I'm constantly singing a praise, I have constant access mm-hmm. to you, and because of my constant access, these things seem like trivial. Yeah, that's very good. So he starts off just talking about the presence of God, the presence of God, but then he says exactly what Justin just said is that as, as you're praising him and focusing on him and you're on the way, right? You find blessing even in the dry places, right? In the, in, in, in the pools, the, the, the journey along the way. There's blessing there. And God's special presence is there. Um, and, and so he, 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 he shows this again, blessed is this idea of, of happy, right? These are people who, who have, you could say Zion is mapped out on their hearts, right? They, they, they know the way, they're excited, they anticipate it, um, their hearts are set on it because of the joy and satisfaction they will experience in God's presence. They can't wait. I want to pause again, another point of application. Is it selfish to talk too much about personal satisfaction and joy as the reason for worshiping God, is that selfish? Shouldn't we just do it because it glorifies Him and we're called to worship Him? And if we talk too much about personal satisfaction in it, we're just worshiping for what we can get out of it. Um, is is that is that selfish to talk to play up the, the satisfaction and enjoyment we get from being in God's presence? No. Why not? It affirms in You. Okay. That desire, it gives you a good feeling. Okay. Yeah. And it's further implanted. Good. Is I'm yeah. Yeah. Hmm. One more line. Yeah. Yeah. It's what we were made for. It's what we were made for. Yeah. I mean, think of it. We don't. We don't think this... In any other situation, I mean, any relationship, right? If, if, if someone, like a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right, is so excited just to be with you and loves being with you, are you going to be like, well, that's very selfish of you? <laughs> no! The, the, the fact that they are enjoying your presence and just love being with you, that actually, for lack of a better term, glorifies you, right? Their enjoyment of you and, and love being in your presence actually reflects your character, Yes, Linda. It's also a good witness. Yes, it is. Like the hope that's in us, right? Yeah. I mean if you're joyful and happy and glad when you think about it, talk about it, and whatever. People want to wanna know what yeah, as you said. Yes, Exactly right. And we'll see here in the next verse that this this anticipation, this joy, satisfaction, even through these these lesser exciting points in the in the journey. And, and uh, John Piper famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. that That's, as Franny as, as pointed out, that we were made for this. We were made to find our satisfaction and our joy in God, our creator. And in us doing that, it actually reflects his glory and his worth, right? Yes, Bob. Sunday evening, when the choir sang out here, mm-hmm had the feeling of the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And the sound was just outstanding. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's enjoyable, right? That, that just, just, the, just being reminded of God's presence and God's goodness. Uh, we should find satisfaction in that, right? If, that, if we walk away from that just kind of cold and unaffected and whatever, well, that's a problem, right? <laughs> So it's great. It's good to talk about the satisfaction and joy we get in being in God's presence. Verse 6, I love this verse, because here we see some poetic beauty that doesn't necessarily transfer over into English. That's the difficult thing about translating poetry, because each language culture has a different approach to poetry, right? In English, our poetry is poetry kind of like when it rhymes, Right, Hebrew—it's poetry when it's parallel, when there's parallelism. It's just, and then poetry is so steeped in culture, language, similarity to other words. All of these things play into it, and sometimes it's really hard to transfer everything over into that, into a different language. And so we see here the travelers going through the Valley of Baca. And to us, we're like, what in the world is the Valley of Baca? That means. Nothing to me, okay well geographically baca um, is a uh let's see it's baca is is kind of like this dry sandy valley it's a difficult place for pilgrims, okay, but it's also very close to this Hebrew word, which is Weeping. So this is Baca, the valley. And in in, in in the original Hebrew, these these are vowel points down here. So Hebrew, the big letters are all consonants, and the the smaller this little 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 notations underneath are vowel points, and these are provided later. So in the original Hebrew, it would have just looked like the Uh, the main consonants. And and so we see this, at least we see this similarity in word and we're like, hmm, is there something there? And then when we get down to verse 6, we see the early rain covering it with pools. And this is a Hebrew word that depending on the vowel points down here could either mean pools or blessing. And in fact, some English versions translate this as blessing. I believe in a poetic play on words, the psalmist is, is talking about the valley of Baca, he's talking about pools and the springs and the rain, but there's also a similarity in word choice to where it's almost, you can kind of see in a poetic way, as they go through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs, and the early rain also covers it with blessing. And we see that even through this dry, arid time, there is this blessing. There is this joy. It carries that idea. That this is a dry and difficult stretch of the journey, but it has become an oasis. It's a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. Envision weary pilgrims traveling through dry, arid land. And then suddenly they're blessed from rain from above, collecting in pools around them. God blesses those, and I believe this is what's being communicated here. God blesses those whose hearts are directed to his presence. That, that even in the dry seasons of life, he blesses them with refreshment and strength that comes from placing your hope in him. As you have high, the highways to Zion in your hearts, Even as you go through the valley of Baca, the dry, arid valley, God brings blessing to you even there. And he gives you strength, verse 7. They go from strength to strength. What do you think this is saying? Strength to strength. Okay, so Elsie said it reminds her of from glory to glory. Does anyone know where that is found? 2 Corinthians 3.18. From strength to strength. I think this is what is being communicated here. That as they're journeying, these are pilgrims going to Jerusalem. With every step, God is renewing their strength so that they can continue in their journey to appear before God. From strength to strength to strength. God is renewing their strength. Yes? Yes? hmm uh, Verse five. five. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Yeah, so 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 Lynette uh, pointed out the connection to verse five here. We see the similar idea. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart is are the highways to Zion. So as they're traveling, they're depending on God for their strength. Verse 7, and we see almost the fulfillment of that. They're trusting in God for their strength. Verse 7 is they are going forward from strength to strength. I think also of Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God gives you the strength to follow Him. I think also of 2 Corinthians again, this time verse 16 through 18, Paul says this, For we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed, how often? Day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to, not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things which are unseen are eternal. So, in that passage, if we're t- looking through, uh, through the lens of a pilgrim, what's the ultimate presence of God that he's looking forward to? Not, not the gathering of the church. He's talking about the very presence of God in eternity. And so, we could even apply this broadly to our whole lives that what, we're on a pilgrimage, we are on a journey, and our ultimate destination isn't the temple. It's, it's the throne room of God. It is the very presence of God in heaven. Does that, do you have an anticipation for that? Do you have an excitement about that? We, I mean, we just, we just mentioned the, the homegoing of Norm Randall, right? He got there. He made it there. Does that excite you? God gives blessing even through the dry places and even, and even gives, gives strength for the journey. Verse 8 through 9 is, is kind of an interesting uh, portion. We see that he gives a prayer. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Verse 9, behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And I actually made a mistake here. because We did mention that God is a shield, and that is true right here. But I believe that this is not referring to God. Behold our shield, O God. How do I know that? Any thoughts? Uh, remember remember, Hebrew poetry. Parallelism. First and second line. What makes me think that shield is not in reference to God? The face of your anointed is Jesus. Well, ultimately, Jesus, in, in this Hebrew context, before Jesus... Who would the anointed one be? The king. The king. And so I believe that behold our shield. So if we're going to look at the parallelism, behold is, is parallel to look. Our shield would be face of your anointed. Um, I think what he's basically doing, he's going to the temple and he's praying for God's favor on the king. I think that's what's going on here. Now, in some English translations, again, it's hard. In some English translations, we'll render it as, Behold, O God, our shield. But if we kind of keep it to Hebrew poetry and the structure there, that is actually referring to the anointed, the king. Why is this included here? In their context, because divine favor and protection of the king resulted in protection and blessing for the people, right? So, as goes the king, so to speak, so goes People, and so he prayed for God's protection and and, in attention to the king of Israel. But I want to get down to verses 10 through 12 because this is these are the verses that this passage is really known for. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, and I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. We see this contrast. A day versus a thousand, implied a thousand days. One day in God's courts, in God's presence, is so much better than a thousand days anywhere else. When I don't know quite how to articulate or voice things, I just go to Charles Spurgeon and see how he articulated it because he's so good with words. Here's how he comments on this verse. Under the most favorable circumstances in which earth's pleasures can be enjoyed, they are not comparable by so much as one in a thousand to the delights of the service of God. To feel his love, to rejoice in the person of the anointed Savior, to survey the promises and feel the power of the Holy Spirit in applying precious truths to the soul is a joy which worldlings, I love that word, cannot understand but which true believers are ravished with. Even a glimpse at the love of God is better than ages spent in the pleasures of sense. See, I told you, he does so much better than I I ever could. Here's my best attempt at it, is basically he's saying quality over quantity. (laughs) That, That... just one day in his presence has so much more weight, has so much more satisfaction than a thousand anywhere else with any, the best that the world has to offer. Just give me one day. And remember we said earlier that he, he's jealous of those who live there. But he knows he can't live there. But he's like, just give me a day. Just give me a day in his presence. We see another contrast. What's the next contrast? Doorkeeper versus what? dwelling in the tents of the wicked. So there's two contrasts. Doorkeeper where in the house of my God, dwelling in the tents of the wicked. Your closeness to God is far more valuable than your status in life. And again, I'll go back to Spurgeon. He says, The lowest station in connection with the Lord's house is better than the highest position among the godless. And then he says this, God's worst is better than the devil's best. I love that. If the source of your satisfaction is tied to position, you will go where the promotions are. If it takes you to the tent of the wicked fine, right? I'm just going for the highest spot. But with every step up the ladder, you're one, further, one step further from the sweetness of being in the presence of God. And the psalmist is saying, just make me the doorkeeper. I don't care. I don't need the highest position. I don't need to be a priest or a singer or have an official role. Just keep me at the door so I can just glance in. If I can just, if I can just peek in. And so if this is quality over quantity, this could be presence over Position. Is that how you view God? What drives you? What are your desires? Verse 11, I think, is the reason for verse 10. For, why such great desire? We'll see the reason before I move on to that. Any questions, comments on verse 10 or anything else up till now? Yes. So the sons of Korah, the original Korah, uh, a Levite who was in charge of the doorkeeping of the tabernacle, mm-hmm. uh, is there a connection here, since this is listed at the beginning as written by the sons of Korah, with this verse? I don't know. I mean, the, the sons of Korah did sing a lot of psalms, right? They're connected to a lot of ancestors, generations, right. beyond that if you're right. talking about the temple. I don't know. I had not thought about that. Um, but that's kind of a cool connection. Um, it's not overtly connected, but uh, perhaps a Jew reading this, when they see doorkeeper, right, they might make that connection themselves. Stephanie? Um, could the difference between being a doorkeeper better than living for pleasure with the worldly? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, the tense of wickedness. Right? That that what what are you pursuing? And again, if if you're seeking prominence, position, that will lead to what? It'll lead to compromise. And you'll pursue pleasure, you'll pursue whatever sin you need to pursue in order to find your dwelling place, so to speak. And and, and he's communicating it's It's not worth it, right? God's worst is better than the devil's best. Um, that, That you can try to pursue everything the world has to offer. It doesn't come close to even the worst that God has to offer. Verse 11 is the reason why the psalmist has such a craving, a desire for the presence of God. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I believe that again with the Hebrew parallelism here we see a connection sun and a shield and favor and honor. In other words this is this is who God is and this is what God gives. His character, his blessings, is based on his character. He is a sun, all right? The sun shining. And we see that connection to favor. I think of Numbers 6 24 through 26, where it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance upon you and give you peace. Uh, Some English versions will have grace and glory. Same idea. God is a son, and so he bestows favor. He bestows blessing. He bestows grace. God is a shield, and so he bestows honor. He bestows glory. Have you ever thought about what in the world is God doing giving glory and honor to the likes of us? That would just seem almost misplaced. God, I'm supposed to be giving you honor and glory. And you're bestowing honor to me? Even if we consider this verse in terms of a pilgrim, right? The sun, the the the, the warmth, the guidance, the shield, the protection from dangers along the journey. God is a sun and a shield, and so he bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Are you suspicious of that phrase? What makes us suspicious of that phrase? Our definition of good. We looked at that last week a little bit, didn't we? It does really fall down to our definition of good, because we've all experienced, in our eyes, a good thing withheld. And we think, why did God withhold that? I'm trying to walk uprightly. Is this saying that his goodness is conditional? I mean, it says, no good thing you withhold from those who walk uprightly. What's, what's going on there? Is it contingent on us walking uprightly? I think there is a contingency there. I, I, I think we, we wouldn't want to say that... Um, that it's not saying that God's, God is only good... He's only a good God if you're a good boy, right? <laughs> okay? That His goodness, His grace is dependent on your works, Yes. Is it saying that we only will recognize it as good? I think you're onto something there, Maybe Becky. Yeah. I think the chief thing that they're talking about right here is that he's not going to pull us from the glory of being in his temple. Yeah. Has the glory of having them to have them now, but there's access to them. Mm-hmm. And so the things that we define as good, even if they're not good the way we define them, mm-hmm. lead us to the blessings of things that he's already given us. Yeah. So yeah. So Yeah, we already have. He's been given us. We have all things pertaining to life and godliness. We have exceeding great and precious promises that are kept and reserved in heaven for us, right? So we have the good already stored away. Um, But again, back to Old Spurgeon. He says, Some apparent good may be withheld, but no real good. No, not one. Romans 8.32 says what? He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 1 Corinthians 3.23 All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. I think what he's saying is, for those who trust him, he will not withhold anything good at all. And this is his grace, which is unconditional by nature, Right? I think what he's saying is God's good gifts are freely available and already stored away for those who are ready to receive them. When we're walking a crooked path, we're not on a pilgrimage. We're going our own way. Are we even seeking God's grace? We're not. Where are we seeking good? In lesser things the tents of the wicked, right? We, we, we are not even looking for God's good. We are pursuing our own way. We're not making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We're getting sidetracks. sidetracked. We don't have the highways in our hearts. We're pursuing the lust of the flesh. So those who are walking in His ways, trusting Him, are those who are actually eager for and are actually desiring God's grace. Those are those who walk uprightly. And to those individuals... God withholds no good thing. He's, he is giving, he's ready to withhold no good thing to those who are looking for the good things that he is bestowing. When we choose not to, 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 to go in his way, we're choosing not to receive the good things that he's freely giving. Yes, Lynette? Sometimes this definition from Absolutely. Most times. <laughs> he was saying saying that that on on Sunday night, right? You are always good. Though my eyes can't see, help my heart believe that you are always only good. I continually have to remind myself of God's goodness. Mm -hmm. I get I stumble over life's processes. Mm -hmm. but when I can stop and say he's always been good to me Mm -hmm. and I, I can on all of the things that he's done for me, but I still have to remind myself. Yes, we do constantly. Um, I love how Jesus God approached the Old Testament Jews because he he really understood how forgetful they were to the point where he said, "You need to write reminders on your face. That's how forgetful you are." you need to write you need to tie tassels on your on your clothes you need to write it on your hands you need to write it on your face why because we forget his goodness so easily and we go after our own ways so quickly and the definition of good is is so key right all things work together for good to those who love God what is the good he's those who are he is we are being conformed into the image of his son and so we need to understand, what, what do I see as good? And, as we, and if we line up our definition with God's definition, he will not withhold a single good thing from you. If God withholds something from you, it was not good for you. What an incredible, gracious God that we have. And it is this characteristic of God that produces this mindset Right here. What do we do sometimes? I just need to want God more. So I'll just close my eyes and clench my fists and just try to want Him more. Okay, that doesn't work. A genuine desire of God comes from a true, genuine realization of His goodness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why do we not crave God's presence? We have not tasted his goodness. We don't see how glorious and how good he is. And so we see the conclusion of the psalm, verse 12. "O Lord of hosts. And there's that title again. Lord of armies. Blessed. Happy is the one who trusts in you. Happiness. What's the key to happiness? What's the key to hope? Trusting in God and nothing else. Do you see God that way? Do you crave God's presence that way? Yes, Elsie. Yeah, so Psalm one has some similar ideas of blessedness and yeah, I like that. Good. Anything else? Other thoughts, comments before we close tonight. Yes, good. a about about that name before. Well, what did Jacob's name turn into? Israel. Right? And so when we see God of Jacob there's a strong covenant component to that. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, God is, is, is described as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Jacob is the one who's named Israel and, and the forefather of, of the nation of Israel. And so when they say Jacob, they think the patriarch, they think of Israel, they think of all the covenant faithfulness that God has shown all throughout the ages, and so it goes to his loyalty and his, we'll even see soon in Mark, um, in, in Mark 12 on Sunday mornings um, how he, Jesus refutes the religious leaders by pointing to the resurrection and he quotes the burning bush passage where he says that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His promises, his covenant extends beyond this life. And so when people see God of Jacob, they're thinking this is a God of Covenant, faithfulness, loyalty, promises that cannot be broken. Bob, I like our memory verse where Paul encourages us to pray for the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit in our man, and for what purpose that we can know the height, breadth, length, and depth of His That's a great connection, yeah, to what we've been memorizing, and uh, and Bob's giving a great example of what it means to meditate. Right, we memorize internalize and then we preach to ourselves and we see all oh, that prayer that's what we've been memorizing what is he praying for strength from the spirit so that we can comprehend how good and how loving God is you need God's grace to see how good he is so you can pray for that you can pray for the grace to see his goodness anything else real quick before we wrap up yeah you brought first as highlight and when we read it it's like oh I Heard that before. Yeah. And so I started thinking, and this weekend was the, you know, the music with galleries So I cool when I found Matt Mars Song One Day and it's like, oh yeah, I think we've read Oh, I don't, I don't know. know if I've read it. He's He's heard heard that. I guess everyone else has, except for me. <laughs> All, right. All right. Wonderful. Uh next week is uh Psalm we we got our first special request. For a psalm, I told you, if if you can if you can request a psalm, I'll do it as long as it's not Psalm 119. I won't do that at least in one day. Um, psalm 89 is the next one, and it'll probably be a two-parter because this was requested and I looked at it and I'm like, oh, it's 52 verses long. So, um, it's a fantastic song, and so I would encourage you to read through it. And digest it because we won't be able to get to everything in the psalm and we'll probably stretch it over the next two weeks Um, but if you want to see a good passage that highlights the promises and covenants of God and then puts that right next to current difficulties that where his promises aren't clear read Psalm 89 so let's pray and yes Laura if anybody can stay and help we need to, uh, for the wedding this weekend. Oh, yeah. There's a wedding. You guys got it? Okay. They actually There actually is a plan, I think, like, Thursday night, Friday, all that stuff, to get uh, things squared away. But there is a wedding this weekend with David and Haley. They're hiding back there in the corner. But, yeah, they're getting married this Saturday, so... Um, Uh, yeah, that's exciting, Uh, and we'll even pray for that as we pray to close tonight. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you so much for um, how good you are, and I pray that you would help us see that. Um, I pray that you'd help us taste and see that you are good, that we can enjoy your blessing even through the dry seasons of life as we're journeying uh, to our ultimate destination, that is your very presence. We thank you for showing us your goodness through your word tonight. Lord, we also uh, thank you and, and, uh, for, for David and Haley and their upcoming wedding this Saturday. I pray you just bless them um, and, uh, and give them a Christ-honoring and, and, uh, and, and loving relationship. And uh, we just rejoice with them, Lord. And I pray that you would guide them in the days and weeks and years to come. We love you in your son's name we pray. Amen.